Welcome back to the Content Lab Podcast, the podcast designed for content writers, content managers, content marketers, content enthusiasts, everybody, where we take off our floaties, put on our goggles, and dive into the deep end of content marketing. I am your co-host, John Becker, joined as always by the incomparable Liz Moorhead. How are you, Liz? Uh, I'm good. I'm sleepy. A little less rained on. This morning was a little much because uh, we're all hanging together here in Connecticut. But no, really good. I always like being in office with everybody. Um, yeah. So as you said, there are there's something unique about our episode today. We are in the same room for a second time. I look pretty good today, too. I'm feeling like I have a good hair day. You look great. Thanks. You too, bud. You're also having a great hair day. <laughs> <laughs> good, uh, good hair for radio. Well, who's that? So secondly, <laughs> we are we are not alone together or not together alone or something because we are also joined by another colleague, Dan Bond. Hello. Impact's paid media specialist. Dan, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Um, like John said, I'm Dan Baum. I'm a paid media specialist at Impact. Um, and I focus on largely Google ads, LinkedIn ads, and all things data analytics. So quick question for the folks at home. I know the answer to this, but how did you end up doing what you do? Because it does lead a bit into what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I, I went to, to school um, and I didn't have a marketing degree. I didn't go for a marketing degree. Um, I had a um, biology degree actually, and the uh, the the relation. I, I used to work at Impact before I was in high school, and I was looking for something after school, and, and ended up running into our um, talent director, uh, Natalie Davis, and I had a temporary job, and I fell in love with the job, and I'm still here today. So. Cool. Yeah. So the reason we brought you in here is for a quick interrogation sure. on something that I personally have really become very passionate about here at Impact. And I think, I can't remember who I was talking to about this last week. I think it was our videographer, Mariah Soto, and how there is this natural inclination, and I actually see it happen physically, which is when I first noticed it that when people often sit down to write a piece of content for work, you will see them physically start in a normal posture and then straighten up as if they're like putting on a mental suit <laughs> and becoming someone else. And you can read it in their writing. You can see that they're choosing words that aren't necessarily particularly what they would normally choose or they go out of their way to sound sterilized or academic, you know, a yeah. lot of the things that we were taught when we were younger. And I wanted Dan to come on here today, as did John, to talk about the fact that you actually went through this transformation. And over the past, especially I would say the past six months, you've written a few pieces that have really been, not only I would say a departure from what you typically used to write, but we also received a lot of audience response because of the human approach. So that's really what I'm hoping that we can talk to both you and John about today. Um, John, obviously you from the editorial coaching perspective and Dan having gone yeah. through this yourself, um, you know, and gone through this transformation, like what does it take to be, what does it take to be someone who actually writes like a human freaking being? <laughs> and are there benefits to that? And just your own personal growth with that. So that's what I want to start with. 
Yeah, I think for a lot of people who are writing content, the last time that they've written in any, you know, any real, to any real extent is, is college and, or, or whatever. And I think having those sorts of expectations and bringing them to, um, to content marketing creates some, some dissonance. It's, it's difficult to bring those conventions to this very different style of writing. It's almost impossible, yeah. So, well, John, you come from an academic background. Why do we see those conventions? And just to get more specific, you know, don't use I, don't use we, speak in the third, seem very detached. Where does that come from? Why is that something that is valued to the point where we have to unteach this from a marketing perspective? You know, I think when you are going through your formal education, you are taught always that you are a sort of conduit of information. That when you write, you are presenting evidence or you are presenting research or you are presenting the findings in your lab report or the, the information from some other scholar. And it's as if that your voice doesn't matter and you, you erase yourself. You don't use you. You don't use I. It's, it's all about the evidence that are, you are convey. And that's, that's trained into us from a pretty young age and through high school and college and, and, and graduate school and, and beyond. And I was, I was actually thinking about today, uh, a, my cousin is a, she's a college professor and um, she went, you know, went through college, went through, P, got her PhD and she, she wrote, she remember she told me, told me about writing her first um, piece for a peer reviewed journal. And she's very bright. She's a she's a teacher in the Ivy League, um, and she this first piece. She's a good writer. Um, her first piece was torn to shreds. Oh yeah. And, and I, I think and and this is you know she had completed a PhD like she she was very comfortable. She had done research, but we are training people to reach a pinnacle that few actually get to. But the pinnacle is to publish in a peer reviewed journal. You know that that's like the height of academia. Um, and so all along, unless you take something like a creative writing class or a creative nonfiction class, all along through your academic growth, you are told these same few conventions. Mm -hmm. And I think when we switch to content marketing and the type of writing that we do here, it's, oh, it's a 180 of that. It's now voice matters. Now it's like you are the expert. Your expertise matters. And if you don't have something original, you know, we go from saying don't say something original because you can't possibly have come up with anything original to you better have something original to say, otherwise why am I reading this? So it's, it's a real like complete flip from how we are taught as writers. Well, I think it's true because content marketing, the goal is to not only educate, the goal is to educate and be memorable. And it's funny you talk about the peer review process. I'm going through that right now and it's almost I'm having to do the inverse because I'm doing peer, I'm in the process of, doing a book about beer history and politics in Maryland, and I'm going through the peer review process, and it is brutal. I, I remember I got my first manuscript back. I'm like, I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna go cry for a little bit. It's gonna be fine. And you know, it was, because it was the same thing. You know, you, you, I, I'm always, I, I'm having to train myself out of doing it and getting way more academic. So it's, it's an interesting context switch, but this is where I wanna ask Dan about this. Cause I remember, there's a particular article that I really want to start with. And, and for the listeners, we'll put all of these in the show notes. There were two that you really started with that I remember when you sent the drafts over, I just went, wow. 
like I gave you the challenge and I said, you know, you need to get personal. You need to do these things. And it was talking about work anxiety and stress Mm -hmm. and then also imposter syndrome. And and I, I want to know initially how hard was it for you? Those initial tries of finding that and what you sound like. Uh, Yeah, it it was exactly, you know, as John said, it's, it's unlearning everything I've ever learned. You know, the, the degree I have and, all the years you spend in the education system, you, you build up to this, to this point. And then it's like, all that was for nothing compared to, you know, the style of writing that we're going for, um, with, with content marketing. Um, so it was, it was a very, you know, it was a shocking experience to be able to put in, you know, things like assumptions and, and, um, personality and jokes and, you know, funny images and captions and things that weren't, wouldn't be, you know, I wasn't going to get sent back to me with an A or a B or a C on it. Um, it, it's, it was unlearning everything that I've, you know, I've ever learned about formal writing and writing for publishing. Um, so it took a lot. It took, you know, it t- took a few rounds of, of trial and error to kind of find my voice. Um, but I think one of the really important things is, is the, the headspace you're in when you're writing something like that. Um, the, the mood you're in, the what's going on in your life, um, things like that all affects, you know, the, that voice is coming out when you're writing. So um, I, I would see different um, versions of the same article that I wrote in, on separate occasions and to be like, wow, there's a real stark difference about the content here. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's based on the, the headspace I was in at that point in time. So kind of like running with that, you know, running with your, your emotions and things like that was, totally you know unheard of for me so took a few times but i'm happy with how they those articles ended up turning out can you talk to us about what headspace allows you to be most productive or most effective as a writer um for me uh, uh, i like writing when i'm kind of in like a sassy attitude mood. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why, um, but that's my favorite. Reading back my, the other articles I've written, like that's, those are my favorite ones. Um, and, I, and it's, you know, whether I can identify how to get myself in that space, I don't know. Like that's, that's another question, but um, it's kind of like identifying that and the conversations I'm having during that given day. I'm like, wow, I'm in a, I'm in an interesting mood today. I should probably, you know, pull up a doc and start writing because I think this could be really good. <laughs> yeah. I always think it's funny when people use the word interesting. I'm like, ah, oh, that's not the word you want to say. No. Uh, it very rarely is. I think when people use the word interesting, they only really mean interesting about 5% of the time. Yeah. Uh, but So here's my question about that, though. I would agree. I can always tell. I remember there was a time where you gave me a draft, and the first thing I said to you was, so where were you mentally when you were writing this? Because you were clearly not here. Right. But my real question there is, what about the ones where you had to tap into those darker places? Like the one where you you had to describe having a panic attack, panic mm-hmm. attack and pulling yourself on the side of the road. I, that doesn't necessarily come from a place of sass. Right, no. I would agree. Um, and I think it's with those kinds of topics, it's more like putting my, to, to get ready to write a piece like that, I would, I would think about someone else that could be in the same situation mm-hmm. that I was in or um, writing something about, you know, mental health or, you know, things that, things that we, the pressures that we all face every day. Um, I would, you know, imagine things, 
uh, other people being in that similar situation and kind of saying, okay, who really needs to, to read this and what do they really need to know? Like, what do they need to see um, in this article? And then that, that would help me kind of get to, you know, the end goal. Hmm. So do you, to go, I, I love the headspace thing because that, that connects to what Liz began with that, you know, the, the sort of body language that someone has that they, they've become rigid and that seems to sort of mimic the, the mentality that they have going into something versus sitting with your feet up or sitting on a beanbag chair or feeling sassy or, or something. Do you find when you have to write, do you, do you wait for that headspace to come or do you just sort of write and allow the headspace that you're in to influence the way the creation happens? Um, I think that all depends on if there's a deadline coming or not. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll, I'll either identify it and kind of just like, okay, let me just, you know, pull something up and, and start writing, um, whether I'm meaning to or not. Um, but it's, it's a learning process for me and I'm starting to get better at kind of being able to get into that headspace where like, this is my true voice. This is what I want to say and how I want to say it. Um, so it's still a process for me to, mm -hmm. to get there. Um, but I'm working on, it. I think I'm getting better at, uh, you know, just being mentally prepared when I do need to sit down and actually write, but it's, you know, there's a deadline or something like that when I actually have to get it done. So. That's always really funny too. And you bring up a really good point. And I think I put this in an issue of the latest ones about how sometimes I have to mentally trick myself to get into the right space because especially in terms of what you and I do, John, like we don't necessarily have the, the luxury of like, okay, I can come back to this tomorrow. You're like, no, I've got to like mentally force myself into this space. And so I, I have a very particular playlist that I have by mood and I sometimes, it's sometimes not very fun because if I have to push myself to go to a, a really emotionally vulnerable place, that means I have to break out some stuff that really makes me feel things. And then I, I have to make it like, I, my whole basement becomes an echo chamber essentially of this giant, like I love, I'm a theatrical person in case nobody knows. Um, so, but there's that, but sometimes also if I'm like trying to do peppy copywriting, I want to, I had to write the inbound brochure. It, we reimagined that brochure four times and then I had to write 18 pages in 12 hours. And it was like, so this is our new vision. Liz, the agency model is broken. Now get it out of your brain. We're going to talk at you for 10 minutes and figure it out. And I was, I just wanted to throw myself into traffic and I ended up the only way I tricked myself into doing it. It was two o'clock in the morning and I put Andrew WK's party hard on, on repeat for 30 minutes and was just like jumping up and down and trying to like get myself pats and be like, yeah, I got this. It's 2 a.m. but I'm ready to go. And that it's funny what you have to mentally do to trick yourself into those feelings. And music is the greatest, uh, you know, creator of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dan, can you talk a little bit about sort of how your relationship with an editorial staff helps your process. Writing is inherently vulnerable. And I think mm -hmm. when we have someone see, especially if we're being sassy or we're being funny or we're being emotionally vulnerable, and then we turn it over to someone who might say, do, 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 do. you know, this doesn't work, take this out, move this. How do you approach um, being open to feedback? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I would, the trust is the biggest thing. You have to like, like who you're working with, you need to put the time in to talk through some of those things. Um, when a lot of times, like I would say, you know, pre 
this new phase of my, you know, writing career, I guess. The new Dan. Um, the new Dan, the new writing Dan. Um, it was always very like, just write your article, get it to me. I'll send you some revisions. That's it. Um, but have it like taking the time to sit and have a conversation, um, you know, whether it's a 30 minute hour conversation with uh, whomever's editing or, or reading the article, um, you really get to the root of why you're trying to say what you want to say and how to best convey that to whomever is reading it. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that, um, the, the, the best thing is that is developing that trust with whomever, whomever's reading the, mm -hmm. the article. Okay. Um, I want to pivot here for a moment. Um, I don't have a couch. I'm not Ross, but we're pivoting anyway. Um, but I remember there were a couple of moments that were very interesting for me, at least in terms of watching you. And I know others on the editorial team noticed this as well. When you started getting response to some of the things that you've written. Yeah. And how did that feel? That's big. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the justification right there. You know, you, you someone sends you a message on LinkedIn in response to like your article and, uh, and it's like, even if it's just that one spot response, someone saying, Hey, this is a really great article. You know, it really hit home for me. You know, that makes the whole thing worth it. What was the best piece of feedback you've ever gotten? Um, so I would say, I would say two, two things. Um, my, the first article was um, about imposter syndrome at work and, you know, not feeling like you are, you, you can cut it in whatever company you're at. Um, or you're too young to have, you know, valid opinion or things like that. And somebody very, you know, around the same age as me just sent me a message saying like, Hey, this, this really hits home. And I'm so glad that I'm not the only one feeling this way. Cause it's true. Like everyone's felt that way once, you know, in their life, some, some more than others, some for long periods of time. But, um, that one person just sent that and that was, you know, that hit home really, really hard. So that made the whole writing the whole, however many hours it took me to write it, um, made it, made that all worth it. And the other one was Google analytics tweeting my article. That was just, there was nothing personal there, but that was just like, a no yes. big deal. I was like, a yes, I'm Google approved. <laughs> I'm Google approved. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That makes me think about, about writing academically too, because I feel like there's so much emphasis from teachers and professors on audience. Mm -hmm. You have to like sound right for the right audience. And it's all artifice because the only person who ever reads your work is your teacher, right. you know, is your professor. But you have to like pretend like you're having this very formal conversation. And it's nice when we are actually publishing content on our, on our blog, on our website, that it's, it, now the audience is an actual audience. You might mm -hmm. actually get feedback. And suddenly it makes the process of writing no longer just about a, a very private conversation between you and the teacher, but in fact, a public conversation that could happen on LinkedIn or on, so, on other social media or, you know, on a website if there's a place for comments. But people are actually engaging with your work, which further validates your efforts and further validates uh, your process. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is that so the other thing that he worked on with a, another paid media specialist at our company, Jason, uh, Jason Lindy, he did a, a long form guide on Google ads. And what's yep. been interesting, too, is to see how it's used in the sales process, mm -hmm. because we're talking about this definitely from a kind of a positive, fluffy, like it makes me feel good. But, you know, when we talk about the context of content marketing, my ethos is always like I like content that makes money. And I'd love to see in the sales process that now someone can put in an email 
by the way, this is a guide that will help you get to know Jason and Dan, the people right. you will be working with. Yeah. So that way, it's almost as if you're, you, you are creating this underlying context to the conversation you're having. Yes, I'm educating you. Yes, I'm trying to establish myself so I'm the memorable person. I'm the memorable authority on a given topic. Mm -hmm. But it, you establish that relationship. It's like a little internet handshake, so to speak. And that's what I really love about that. I think it's important to remember that for anyone, uh, you know, writing is something that you develop over the course of your life and your, you know, your career. And I think all of us in this room would probably say we are better writers now than we have been at any point in our lives. And it, it, is, some, it is a muscle that you work and you develop. Um, and I know we've all written in very different, um, you know, different genres and different categories and different, different methods. Um, but every one of those, even though writing for content might feel really different than writing for academia, many of the same strengths do carry over. And the more you work that muscle, the stronger it gets. Um, and I think when you sort of trust the process and trust that each draft and each article and each piece that you write is going to make you better, uh, then you have a sort of growth mindset that allows you to continue. What was the hardest part about it for you? Making Again, this transition. It, it's just like almost like I was cheating. Um, you, you feel like you're cheating when you're not you're not citing your sources or you're not you know putting footnotes in or all those things that you learn when you're writing you know about literature and you know all those summer reading books you're supposed to read in high school, whatever it is, or if you're writing you know um, lab reports or, or for um, on studies and things in the in the science world. Or the medical world, um, it's kind of like, can I really do this? Am I allowed to do this? And kind of realizing that you can write whatever you want, like the freedom, you know, you can say I'm the, I could say I'm the best person in the world and, you know, I'm allowed to do that. Does it make sense? No, but you, you have the freedom of writing literally whatever you want, however you want to write it. Um, and that realization, I think, was probably the hardest for me to... I have a question for you, John, actually, because you do this a lot too. You work very closely with a lot of people on staff here. We're, and, and we've done an episode before on that where you introduced me to the, the word marginalia, which I think is now my new favorite thing. But how do you cultivate that in other people? How do you establish that trust? How do you get people to feel comfortable with, again, something that is inherently vulnerable? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think it's like Dan alluded to. Trust is slowly built. Uh, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't happen immediately. Um, and I think any relationship is a two-way street. And I think we have to, as editors, assume that our writers are putting their best work forward um, and that both uh, they and us are committed to producing the best product possible. Um, and I think if people realize that any critique you have is with, um, you know, what's on the screen and not the person, uh, and that you're your sort of the ethos that you're bringing to the relationship is that you want both them to produce good work, but also for them to, to grow. Um, you know, I, I think that goes a long way to establishing a relationship that feels collegial. Um, and furthermore, I know we talked about this in a previous episode. I see editorial work less as sort of punitive corrections that I'm making and more as a conversation that I'm having with the, the writer. Um, just this morning, I was working with a, a new team member. This was her first piece. Um, 
and I, I was putting a lot of edits in her work and it felt like the tone sort of wasn't right and I didn't want her to read this as me being a sort of arbiter of quality, which I think editors, editorial staffs can sometimes seem like. Um, so I recorded her a, a quick little go video and just said, hey, you know, love what you're doing here. Think about this, think about that. Um, and, and tried to sort of make it about coaching and about improvement, um, not about what she's doing wrong. Uh, and bringing that sort of mentality, and this is again the first time I'm working with this person, I've never met her face to face, only met her on a video call. Um, the hope is that sows the seeds of um, you know, a fruitful relationship that feels collegial, but it doesn't happen overnight and it has to be um, approached with sort of patience and, um, and humility. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, mm -hmm. especially when you talk about all of the different I always find it interesting when I see content managers immediately going for the suggestion tool in Google Docs or something else. Like it, it, the last thing you do is put the polish on it. And the first thing you do is really work with someone to, to really help them and see, you know, what is it that you're actually trying to say before I start correcting these words or giving guidance there? Is, is this the actual word that you wanted mm -hmm. to use and really kind of getting to that true purpose? Remember, uh, Chris Dupre said something in, in WCC, and I forget the anecdote, but I think it comes from Radical Candor. And some, you know, some, some famous professor would say, like, you are wrong, and that he eventually sort of changed that to say, I think you're wrong. Um, you know, like those sort of small changes. So I find whenever I edit something, I'm not going to like cross it out or fix it. I'm going to say, like, I stumbled here, or I wasn't really sure about this. Or I want to know more about that and you know putting myself as editor in the position of sort of inquisitive audience who is you know I, I want to know more about this or I, I don't feel like I totally got this transition um, you know approaching it just as a reader and as an audience member allows um, I, I think kind of like what, what we were saying before it allows people to realize that what you're writing is going to be read by people who don't know who don't, uh, you know, can't give you the benefit of the doubt because they have never met you, they can't hear your voice, and they are gonna only look at what's on the page, not what the writer might think is on the page or what the, you know, and you know, I think it's also kind of important to remember that anytime, you know, any, anything we write here at Impact, there's a great chance that what we're writing is the first thing that a person will ever see from our company. You know, like they're not going to see the piece you wrote last month. They're not going to see our pillar or something else. Like this could be someone's introduction. So, um, you know, that's how much sort of the details matter and how much we have to think of ourselves of, as, as ambassadors who are welcoming people to, um, you know, the entire company's expertise. That's the divine irony, I think, of marketing. I, I hear so many companies and they talk about, oh, our biggest differentiators are people. And then I look at their marketing, I look at the materials they create, and I'm like, then tell me why it sounds like a robot right. wrote all of this. Like, right. if, if your people are your product, really, like the way that we talk about ourselves here, then you need to go out of your way to infuse that and ensure that you're giving permission to people to be themselves. And often that's what it comes down to. Like, you just literally need to say, like, I give you permission to just be a human and to be yourself and sound like you. So, Dan, if you had one piece of advice for someone who either is new to content marketing or they're being challenged by someone or they want to challenge themselves to be more human, what advice would you give them? Um, push the line, I would say. Like, you can always pull back, I would, but you can't. It's a lot harder to add um, in terms of personality, in terms of, you know, 
jokes, anecdotes, um, things like that, you, it's better to have more at the beginning than, than being able to add it when you think something's lacking. When you add when it's lacking, it, it doesn't feel natural, it doesn't feel right, um, but it's so much easier to kind of just write everything that you're thinking and that's in your head that's related to the piece and just, you know, pull back from there. And, you know, you can always, you can always scale back, I guess that's what I would say. John, same question to you, but a little bit of a different spin. So for content managers who may be struggling to get more human content out of their people, what would be one suggestion you would give them? Yeah, I love what Dan said about headspace and about deadlines. You know, deadlines are a great motivator, but they are also, as I've said before, you know, they're, they're, they're a tool to get work out of people and to get things, uh, to get things done. And some people see deadlines as, um, you know, things that, that encourage them to, to produce their best work. And some people see deadlines as things that completely stymie them. So I would say as much as you can, allow people the space and the time that is necessary for quality to happen. Um, you know, quality does not happen um, accidentally and it does not happen quickly in my experience. So I would say as an editor, I always try if I'm, if I'm coaching someone, if I'm editing for someone, if I'm ghostwriting as someone, interviewing them, whatever it is, I always try to make it seem as though they have all the time that they need. And that allows the process to not feel kind of rushed and truncated uh, by, you know, by a deadline, which sometimes might actually be arbitrary. All right, is it time for me to teach you guys something? It is, Liz. What do you have for us today? Uh, I'm cheating. So I, I know technically Learning Corner is supposed to be me teaching you guys something, and I am. I'm gonna teach you guys something because this is something that I learned yesterday, technically while reading, so it's kind of like the double one I'm reading Learning Corner. But um, last night, while my roommate was snoring next to me, <laughs> instead of being a normal human being and sleeping, I stayed up and read a 16-page research study from 2012, and it actually ties really nicely into what we were talking about today. Is noise always bad exploring the effects of ambient noise on creative cognition? And so there's this, been this big debate in the space about should you be listening to music? Should you be listening to ambient noise? Should you be listening to nothing? And I've always been very pro ambient noise. My favorite app that I use a lot is Noisly. Uh, and I like it because I can, like I told you earlier, like I like to trick myself into getting into a particular headspace. And one of my dreams has always been to do one of those cross country train trips where they, it's like, they actually do writer's retreats on Amtrak. I'm saving up to do it. And you just write while you go across the country. And it's a, it's a soundboard where you can create blends. So mine is a low recurring train track with a little bit of rain on it. Cause I always find rain to be soothing and it helps me get into a good space. But apparently a lot of people say that it inhibits their creativity which is why I ended up reading this study. Is noise good or is it bad? So what I found really cool about this is I always wondered how you actually measure this. I've always been trying to find a study that definitively tells me you know, numerically, empirically, how do you quantify impact of noise on creativity? And the overarching finding of it was, hold on, that 
they ran five different experiments based on whether it was low, moderate, high, none, all of these different things that moderate levels of noise not only lead to higher creative output, but also enhance people's adoption of innovative products. But here's what's neat. So some of the ways they would measure it is across five different experiences. They would measure number of ideas generated, time spent on generating the ideas. So not only how many ideas they actually created, but how long it actually took it to get them out of their head. Uh, processing motivation. So, you know, how motivated were they were to stay engaged, things like that. And then also they then looked at the ideas themselves and said, okay, how creative were these ideas actually? Hmm. So it was really neat for me to find this data. And the reason I bring this up as a learning corner is that I have found one of the biggest challenges for me when I used to have to sit down and really start writing is I would actually get distracted by music. So music would get me into the right headspace, but then I, I didn't know, I'd be like, well, this is not the Beyonce song I wanted. Mm -hmm. Or like I would have the perfect playlist, but I wanted to hear the other song first. And so I would end up getting like very distracted by it. So the learning corner I have for everybody today is that, especially given the topic that we're talking about, is to explore different ways of getting yourself into that headspace. Get creative. You know, is it music that brings you there but doesn't keep you there? Or is it ambient noise that gets you in there? Or maybe not at all. For some people, it still really doesn't work. Um, I'll link the research study in the show notes. Again, I know I'm probably the only crazy person who stays up on a Sunday night until 3 a.m. reading research, but it was just the super coolest thing. And again, the app I recommend is Noisly. It's free. It's a free Chrome extension and an app. So that's cool. my learning corner. All right, guys, what are you reading? I want to know. I just think it's interesting uh, on commenting on yours. Um, I always end up um, I've noticed I'll start if I'm going to write, I'll start with the music and then I'll be like, all right, this, I can't like, I need to focus. I'll pause it. And then with every intention of re, re playing it. And then I just sit there with the earbuds at night mm -hmm. with nothing playing. Mm -hmm. Like if they're earplugs at that point. That's interesting. Yeah. If you actually, so our head of editorial staff, Ramona, she, whenever you put, whenever she puts her headphones down, somebody commented, what is that coming out of her headphones? It's rain. It's rain. Mm -hmm. It's rain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm reading um, two things, actually. I'm reading uh, Welcome to the Universe by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, again, book. gets my science fix in because, again, come from that with that background. Um, but I'm also reading uh, Ready Player One, which is you know, has been made into a movie, which I haven't seen yet. I want to finish the book first, um, but I have every intention of watching that. Mm -hmm. Great, great books, both of them. Yeah, those are fantastic <laughs> books. Uh, so I am in the midst of a collection of short stories called American Grief in Four Stages by Sadie Hoagland. Um, she's actually a friend of mine from graduate school, and this is her first book, and it's awesome. Uh, it's gorgeous and haunting and all that sort of stuff. Um, totally recommend it. But um, also I am reading more topical. Just this morning, I found this out. This was announced late last week that in 2020, for the first time, podcasts will be about will be able to win Pulitzer prizes. I saw oh, you shared awesome. that this morning. Yeah, so uh, it's it's tech. It's the the organization is officially referring it, to it as an experimental category, but it is officially the Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting. So it could be radio or it could be podcasts. This is new, and I think you know we talk on our website. Obviously, this is a podcast. But we talk on our website about the, the power of, of podcasts and, and proliferation and advertising on them and all of that. Um, and this is a further um, 
you know, justification for their merit, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, as soon as I get out of peer review hall, I'll start reading again, but I know so what I'm reading this week. We could potentially become the Pulitzer Prize-winning podcast. Watch out, Ira Glass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, and what's the guy from The Daily? I never remember his name. Uh, Michael Babaro. I love Michael Babaro. I want I'm, that voice. I'm Michael, Michael Babaro. And this, this is, is The Daily. Do you do Roman Mars, 99% visible? No. He's got a great voice, too. I, uh, I do love The Daily. It was good. Well, um, good. That's in the title. Michael Bobaro is can't hate on. All on that <laughs> note, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Mark Michael Bobaro Fan Club Radio Hour. <laughs> um, Dan, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. I think that's awesome. Well, John, you Please. have stuff to edit, and I have stuff to edit. We should probably go do that instead of sitting here in this room. Until, Until next time. Until next time. Bye bye.